0: The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome
1: to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You can find out more about them at www.rubberroofs.co.za. In a couple of minutes, I'm going to be joined by, I wouldn't want to call him a peer, it's more of a mentor in the fraud industry, and that's none other than Bart Henderson. He is a world-renowned, and I will say that he's a world-renowned fraud expert and lecturer, and in fact, I had the honor of being lectured by him a whopping 21 years ago on fraud indicators and the state of fraud. Um, and we're going to be chatting more about what's happened in those 21 years since that wonderful training period and some of the cases that Bart has been working on, as well as, of course, the state of fraud in South Africa as we stand right now. Chatting about South Africa, I i don't know whether I'm gobsmacked, whether I'm confused, or what's what's going on in my mind when I think about the South African delegation to Ukraine and Russia. South Africa has a lot of its own problems it needs to sort out. And although in the greater scheme of things, 16 million rand wasted on a flight for extra security personnel and journalists is once again taxpayers' money has been wasted, one needs to look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is, of course… BRICS and AGOA, which is more relevant to South Africa as we sit here today and we debate this topic, AGOA. AGOA by far is more applicable to the South African financial situation because that trade agreement that we have, along with other African countries with the United States, benefits our fiscus immensely. Whereas if one looks at the fiscus from a BRICS perspective, we don't have that much in terms of contribution from our fellow BRICS countries. Look, we're the smallest out of the BRICS nations, and we would expect there to be more in respect of unilateral ties, in terms of trade, etc. but it just doesn't seem to work like that. If one looks at AGOA, America is one of our biggest trading partners, followed by the EU, and to try and make that up in respect of BRICS would just take far too long and create our going to go into absolute free fall. Should we be sanctioned for the stance we're taking? So I don't know what this trip was all about. We've got Ramaphosa, who's now mediating purportedly with other African states to solve a issue that is 150 years in the making involving Ukraine and Russia. And at the same time, our country is in absolute tatters. It's a it's a topic that. I would love to discuss with somebody from an international political perspective to try, understand, and get inside the rationale of this very thin tightrope that Ramaphosa is currently walking. He's trying to appease BRICS, and at the same time, he's trying to appease a goer. So he'll go onto the onto the stage internationally say, we haven't taken a stance. We haven't chosen sides. We are neutral in all of this, but – and there's always this but. And what people don't seem to realize is this but can cost us South Africans dearly. We're currently grey listed. We were grey listed before Lebanon, for Christ's sake. Now what? Now we want to be sanctioned because we're choosing the wrong sides? We need to start thinking about home and we need to start thinking about our people before we decide to spread our wings and try to be international mediators. If we can't solve our problems at home, I don't understand how possibly we can solve other people's problems outside of our country. I'd like to remind you the views expressed on the show aren't necessarily those of High FM or that of myself. Um, The opinions expressed are just that, opinions.
0: Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing.
1: Yeah, this is a confidential brief proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs. I am literally smiling from ear to ear because I've got Bart Henderson in studio with me, um, somebody I really admire and have been friends with for a very long time. Bart, welcome to High FM. Chad, thanks for having me on your show again. Bart, it's always great chatting to you. Um, you travel a lot. You've been on sabbatical. Um, Sometimes I see you in Cape Town Sometimes I see you when you're up here But I thought it was an important conversation we need to have today Um, When one looks at your pedigree um, You've been involved in some of the biggest investigations Um, The Johannesburg market for one comes to mind I think Master Bond is another that comes to mind And of course you're one of the first to get the CFE designations in South Africa Which is now one of the most recognizable designations in the world In fact they've got more than 80,000 Um, designated CFEs that belong to the ACFE worldwide, the certified fraud examiners. And you got that in 1994. Now, 1994 was a a huge change in South Africa. I don't know whether you um, studying at that time um, was was telling. But let's go back a little bit. During my intro, I spoke a little bit about Suramaposa and his travels abroad. So before we get to the crux of our conversation for today, what's your viewpoint on Suramaposa and his balancing act that he's currently trying to perform.
0: Well, Chad, I, I think you've actually touched on two things. The, the, the one thing is the Johannesburg market, um, which, which sort of triggered me a little bit. And then you're talking about the ACFE, which actually plays into your, your, your actual question. Back in 1994, I initiated an investigation into the Johannesburg City Council. And it was heady days for me. I was young. Um, And for me, it it was a question of investigating fraud and corruption. It was the right thing to do. And you had the police, and you go and report it, and and you got support. Where I identified fraud at the Johannesburg fresh produce market, and I reported it to the Johannesburg city, and they did nothing about it. And I was quite surprised by that. So being the kind of person I am in my personality, I went back. Um and they they said they needed more information. So I went back to the market, I got more evidence and I took it back. This went on for a few months and eventually I thought but something's wrong, so eventually I blew the whistle on a on a also a community radio show, uh called Canny FM, which is based in Santon, uh, uh, in Hyde Park, Hyde Park shopping centre that, that that time. Uh to get a long story short, I mean I put pressure on them and continued, had it the story running through the local newspapers and eventually it got into the Star newspaper. And ultimately, the Janisberger, was the transitional metropolitan council at that stage, uh, ordered an investigation, and they appointed Ernst & Young. And I said, but you've got a problem. You can't appoint Ernst & Young because they're the annual auditors. I'm showing you there's 300 million that is circumventing the official uh, uh, um, control processes. All these these transactions are taking place off-book how, how can the, the auditors miss a hole like that? I mean, the turnover of the market is 1.2 billion at that stage and you've got three, 400 million off book financial cash transactions taking place. How do you miss that? So you can't, as the city now, go and appoint the auditors whose job it is to oversee the market because they might be, there might be some civil liability here. Johannesburg City Council went ahead and they appointed the same audit firm. That was responsible for the 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 ALA test function. Ultimately the uh investigation uh, uh went to the Auditor General. The Auditor General phoned me and said, Can you provide us with more evidence? I said I'm happy to cooperate with the Auditor General on one condition. You don't appoint the auditors that was used by the city that was used by the market because there's a conflict of interest. Um and the Auditor General went stum, I never heard from him. Um I carried on, you know, uh radio shows, newspapers, keeping pressure on the Auditor General, and eventually he came out with a report. I had given the city 200 pieces of evidence, physical pieces of evidence. These are cash sale transaction slips with signatures and stamps on them. Um, I'd given them over 200, but in the Auditor General's report, there was only 72 slips, so I knew that the quantum that I was talking about versus the quantum they were talking about was going to be different. We're talking about uh, two-thirds of the physical pieces of evidence were missing. When I questioned the Auditor General, he said, well, these pieces of paper were lost in the copying and collation process. I said, okay, that's very interesting. But in the meantime, the Auditor General then referred the investigation to the Office for Serious Economic Offenses. So there I am. I mean, I'm 30 years old. What do I know? I mean, I, I mean, I'd studied uh, the CFE program. I just got back from the United States. So I was full of vim and spit. And, and then, um, I got a call from, um, the Office for Serious Economic Offenses. Will you cooperate with the investigation? I said, I'm more than happy to cooperate with the investigation but i cannot cooperate with an investigation that involves the same audit firm used by the auditor general used by the city used by the market it would be a conflict of interest they said no we won't do that i said fine i'll come and meet you guys so I, off i go to uh um pretoria meet with the office for serious economic offenses and i take along a, 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 a pa um uh, uh uh, very interesting person anyway so I take her along to this meeting I walk into the office for serious economic offences and there's this rugby field, it's not a desk and it's got all these microphones and wires and everything and I'm like what the heck and the table is just full of people and they start uh, introducing themselves but they're going around rapid fire and I'm going like there must be 15 people in this room so I'm feeling reasonably intimidated you can understand, we were young those days but anyway so I'm sitting there, and everybody's introducing themselves, and I'm starting to feel very jumpy. and I'm feeling very caged. And eventually, I'm like, I'm like looking at these people, and now they start. The advocate for the Office for Economic Offences is next to me. They're, you know, thank you for coming, and thank you for agreeing to cooperate. Um, and she's talking, but I, something is bugging me. So I'm going through all the names to see who I could remember. And there's one guy sitting right in the corner, and I'll never forget his name. It was Jean Roux. He had a bob. You remember those bobs were in fashion. He had this bob, and I'm like, look, and I said, you in the corner, I said, hold on, hold on, everybody, just hold on. You, you're really coming at me, and, and I, I need to collect my thoughts and and understand why I'm here and what you people are doing. Here. I said, you in the corner, you introduced yourself, but you said something very interesting to me. You said, your name is Jean Roux, you introduced yourself, you spoke very quickly, and you said you are wearing two hats. He said to me, yes. I said, him, well, here's my problem right now, guys. I'm not sure where this is, and what's going on here. I said, could you tell me what your two hats are? He says, well, I work for the Office for Serious Economic Offenses, but I'm contracted by Ernst Young. I said to him, look here, my friend, here's the problem that I have. If you're going to wear two hats, you've got to have two heads and somebody with two heads wearing a hat on his head. Okay. It, it, it's not an aberration of nature, but it's, it's, it, it's not normal. So in order to have two hats, you've got to have two heads and I don't see two heads. This is getting to what we're talking about when we get back to Cyril Ramaphosa and his role in trying to mediate peace while he is bipartisan. He's trying to wear two hats. The one is he's saying, yeah, you know, he's bipartisan and then he's going to broker peace. Look, the lady R parked in Simon Town Harbor. That is supposed to be an investigation. You're an investigator. How long you've been doing it? You and I know, beyond a shadow of doubt, that we could investigate, just bring us the documents. We would resolve it in one afternoon. It doesn't take months. It really, really doesn't. The documentation must be there. The bill of lading must be there. There must be an explanation. There is no explanation.
1: Well, there you have it. That's a honest opinion on the question I put out there. Is our president walking a tightrope? And is he wearing two hats? And yes, he is. And what are those two hats going to cause? Well, they're going to cause problems. They've already caused confusion. They've already resulted in a plane being turned back. Let's see how this plays out. We'll be back with more from Bart Henderson straight after this. Confidential
0: Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in
1: roof waterproofing. Hobby's Reef is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Today we're in conversation with Bart Henderson, who's been a fraud investigator for many, many, many years. Before we went to break, we're talking about a potential conflict, um, from a audit firm. Now, if I remember correctly, Bart, I think it was around about just, just pre to, pre 9-11. One good thing that came out of the George Bush Jr. presidency was the Surveillance Oxley Act, which said that auditors were limited in what they could do for companies and they also had to work on a rotational basis. This was to try to take away the perceived bias I would say that there's a lot of confirmation bias when one looks at the role played by an organization that gets paid by the organization they're actually auditing. You brought up a conflict that you detected as early as 94. And we've just seen the news run wild over the last, let's say, decade with audit companies involved in misreporting. What's your take on that?
0: Well, uh, just uh, obviously a little bit of history, um, pre nine eleven, you had uh, anti-money laundering and drug trafficking. You see, the American presidents, they all need to have a war. And Ronald Reagan needed to have a war. And uh, in the early 80s, the war was on drugs. And the FATF, Financial Action Task Force, was actually formed in 19, in, the, in the early 1980s as a response, America's response to going after the proceeds of illicit uh, drug proceeds. Um, and the FATF was in, in fact in existence for almost a decade, um, uh, but what it couldn't get was buy-in from international nations at all. So for about ten years, there were four members, three or four members. Uh, Switzerland was prepared to become a member, but then they had, a, they, had they, they, they agreed to, but then they had to cha- become the chair of the, the FATF. Um, so the FATF limped along. Really, it was anti-money laundering and drug trafficking for a decade. Uh, France Germany Britain the usual that that was the little crowd uh, they realized that they had to have international cooperation in order to fight uh, money laundering specifically drug trafficking then we had September 11th and you had George Bush Jr. standing on the, 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 the steps of, of the, uh, you know, ground zero and saying you're with us or you're against us. And, um, they, the, the, the group, which is the four countries or five countries, or whatever, that were members then, uh, unilaterally decided to create a blacklist. <laughs> and so, uh, countries were literally given the option of, of joining the FATF or getting blacklisted, uh, which you can understand what the implications of you that You could really. lose your swift. You could, you could, Pretty much, um, and within a year, you had 100 countries, and it became anti-money laundering and terrorist financing, um, which resulted in what we have today, which we call uh, FICA and RICA. Those those types of of mechanisms are the mechanisms that we have today. But that that is that is the the, the genesis of of uh, how that literally came about. Uh, when it comes to the audit profession, um, you had two major events, economic events that shook the financial markets in the United States. The first was Enron. Um, which which was bad, but then, uh, well, I mean, it was the biggest financial crime in history. But then, within a year, you had WorldCom, and what people don't realize, you know, everybody when you talk about Enron, um, people will, a lot of people will recognize it and say, yeah, you know, that was a seminal moment uh, for the financial markets. What they don't realize is that when WorldCom hit, it was literally three times bigger, and in response to same auditor. Uh, no, that was not Ar- Arthur I, Anderson. It was. Ar- I, I'm not sure if Wilcom was also Arthur Anderson, but Arthur Anderson, Arthur Anderson uh, um, became interesting. I actually uh, have written quite, quite a bit about it in the past. But in any event, um, the, the there was the the Sharon Watkins letter, um, the smoking gun letter that uh, that was written, obviously published. But David Duncan from Arthur Anderson, and what made Arthur Anderson so interesting at the time is that the, the billions and billions that had been stolen. I mean, you, you know, these are financial transactions. You have to have financial records. And in those days, technology wasn't where we are today where everything's almost electronic. So, so you literally would have rooms, piles and piles and piles of paper to the ceiling. And he had pantechnicans coming to the offices to, to, to carry off all these documents, and he was the one that got caught shredding the documents, and that's what literally caused Arthur Anderson to crash. And then um, the Enron account was it was a major account for 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 David Duncan's office. Um, yeah. So, but in any case, so in the wake of WorldCom, uh, Enron, and then WorldCom. Um, the, the regulators realized that there were two principal issues that were at play with the audit, prof- with the professions. And the one was auditor oversight and lack of auditor, auditor oversight. Um, and the other was auditor independence. And so they passed the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which we know the com- you know, the abbreviation is obviously SOX. Um, which then dealt with those two issues. Uh, brought in auditor rotation, um, cooling off periods, and, and, and a host of other uh, uh, rules and regulations to govern the basically auditor independence and oversight to make sure that this type of thing didn't happen again. Which we've we just lost the court case now. The 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 URBA has lost in court in South Africa, which overturns the auditor rotation provisions. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's purely on legal technicalities or what it is. I haven't really looked into it because I'm not in that space at the moment. Yeah.
1: So we're talking more than two decades ago, we had what was referred to as the Big Five. Then it became the Big Four because Mm -hmm. Arthur Anderson fell on its sword and this act came about. South Africa followed suit and been overturned. We still have the Big Four, Mm -hmm. yet they've been closely linked to issues in our own backyard in South Africa. When one looks at the SARS issue, for example, and the Mm -hmm. so-called rogue unit, there was a major audit company implicated in the narrative.
0: I think, uh Chad. This is this is a a, a, a bugbear of mine. You know, I was uh, recently with with Peter Pedler. You, you you know Peter Pedler, right? He
1: was uh, one of the people accused. No, no. Peter
0: Pedler was the secretary, the acting secretary of the Zondo Commission.
1: Oh, okay. He he's he's moved to PE or Cape Town.
0: No, no. He's he's here in Pretoria. Okay. Yeah, he's in Pretoria. But anyway, ex Exeter yes, yes. Yes. Now I know yeah, who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. He's Exeter ex um, he, um, he put on a, uh, you know, the United Nations, uh, anti-corruption day and, and whatever. And, uh, he was at Packoffs as the CEO, um, and he put on a, uh, the anti-corruption day celebrating anti-corruption or whatever, uh, in 2019 at Packoffs uh, with Free State Treasury and, and, and he invited me as a speaker, Willie Hoffman and, and a few of the other guys. Um, and, um. Here I was uh, uh standing in front of all these, uh, and uh, you know, you walk in the foyer, and you've got the ACFE, and you've got this professional body, and they're, they're all advertising and marketing their ways. And I'm going to stand up there, and uh, you know, sometimes you have to speak truth to power. You have to, you have to say it the way it is. And, and this is it. And uh, my feeling about the professions is that how many, how many, uh, you know, do you lose a hundred million? Before you realize there's a hole in the financial statement, do you lose a billion before there's a hole in your, your your financial statement? You see, all fraud, all corruption has to be expensed. It's not rocket science. It is absolutely not rocket science. And what you do is you lose a billion rand at the end of the year. Um, you know, uh, you start a new year and you just write it off. You But you have to be it somehow. How big does the hole have to get before the audit firm realizes it? There is a problem here. And at the end of the day, you can go back to Barings Bank. You can go back to Societe Generale. You can go back to every single major financial collapse. There is direct involvement and complicity on the part of the audit firms, all of them, without exception. And the same applies to our country. So – you know, do we need socks? I, I, I think you need you need something. But I think the audit firm needs to ta- start taking responsibility for its own involvement in our country in the last 10, 20 years. Show me a major failure. Or show me a major fraud. It's think going to be one of two things. You're either going to have major complicity or you're going to have the level of gross incompetence that defies logic because you cannot lose. We go back to Steinhoff. I mean, come on, guys. You, you create a special, I mean, we know, we in the business understand how these How long do we need to evolve as business people, evolve as human beings? How many investigation courses do we need to introduce before people say, okay, well, you know, that's a large and unusual adjustment at year end. That's the red flag. Drill down on that. It's there. It's there. It's looking at you. Is this a, sp- a special purpose, a special purpose entity? Yes or no? Uh, you know, are you creating a, a receivable and a reverse receivable again? You know, with a special representative, which makes your 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 books look uh, better than what they're supposed to. The signs are all there. If it, it baffles me, it actually as I've got to the point where I'm 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 totally astounded by by how fraud today. And remember something when we started, everything was was a silo based. You know, you you did you did your investigation HR. Payables, receivables, you know, it, everything was in a silo, but today we have what we call enterprise-wide risk management because you have got the technology that allows you interrogate, to interrogate vastly disparate uh, databases. So you could sit anywhere. You can sit on the moon. Just give a forensic auditor access to a database, and you interrogate their data, and you, you will be able to pick up the fraud. So, so for me, generally, most of these audit firms... You know, if they're not just negligent, then they are criminally negligent. And how many times do we see these guys get sued?
1: So my concern always has been when you see a finance house or an audit firm, they get a massive fine. We as as small fry, we see these huge fines, and the average Joe public thinks, oh, they're being punished. They got a fine, but what they don't realize is it makes up a decimal point. Of their profit. Now let's apply this on a- I
0: was, was going to ask, can we define what a, what a massive fine is A massive fine is Arthur Addison being shut down yeah. But then what is left of the carcass Gets picked up by another auditor
1: And it's just trading under a different name Let's look at our country hmm. Are we in the eye of the storm yet? Is there room to recover? Or have we failed In respect of this massive fraud and corruption That we face with daily
0: you know, one of my my favorite life journeys um was was in the two thousands, two thousand and eight, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Was was a it was a wonderful period of my life. You know, I was I was doing a heck of a lot of training and lecturing and travelling, but also doing my investigations and that something. Um we had um the economic meltdown next door, uh in Zimbabwe. And um I you know, everybody was just pulling out and, and not Going back to Zim and, uh, I, 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 head towards the fire. <laughs> you know, it's just, I don't know what it is. But anyway, I, uh, I was invited by the Institute of Chartered, Institute of Internal Auditors, uh, no, Institute of Chartered Accountants, sorry, it was ICAS uh, of Zimbabwe and I would go back. Um, I would obviously charge them in, in Zim dollars and this was when the economy collapsed. Um, and, uh, you had a hyperinflation, so. Uh, I would charge him in Zim dollars, but I left the money there and I created two charities and all that the, the money went to went to those charities. One is Matthew Rusique. Um I forget the other one. But anyway, and I was lecturing uh, in in um, in Harare the one day It was a five day course. You know that. Uh, and on the very, very last day. Uh, with this chaos happening in the country at the time and the total economic collapse. So one of the delegates got up right at the end of the minute and said, Mr. Henderson, um, how bad do you think it can get? And that was a tough question. And I thought, you know, I don't want to tell people the truth, what I really, really think, because for me it's almost like a. I ro- I can see it. It's a road map. Um and I thought, you know what the hell was it? And I, I said to him, you know, guy, let me tell you something. The only, the only thing I can tell you is, is how long is a piece of string? But it's going to get worse than your worst nightmare come true. That was the second last uh, delegate. The last delegate said to me, uh, Mr. Henderson, do you think South Africa can go this way? I said to him, my friend, let me tell you something. Unless South Africa to make sure that it protects the fundamentals that will that prevent it from getting here. The only thing that's going to be different between South Africa and Zimbabwe is going to be the size of the bang.
1: When we look at South Africa, we've got incredible legislation. We've got wonderfully named units that sound as if they can do the work based on the legislation that empowers them. But we're not seeing it happening. Why?
0: Well, um, you know, I I have wonderful wallpaper, you know, in, in my house. Uh, why is the house not selling? <laughs> it's beautiful wallpaper.
1: For me, I think we've got legislation. We just don't have willpower, and willpower equates to rands and cents. If you don't give the correct budget to those units to enforce that legislation, they're not going to be capacitated. I don't. I don't know if it has to do with
0: uh, willpower so much. Uh, There, there are. I mean, there are millions. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Africans that are, that are qualified, that are skilled, that have got the willpower, that have got the determination. Otherwise, we would be further down this rabbit hole. I can assure you. The only reason we're not further than what we are is because of those people. There is willpower. Um, What we have is we have a system that has been totally, irrevocably corrupted. We're talking about you are more involved than I am, Chad, with with the police, and working with police. Um, I might get involved with them working, you know, at the Hawks. I've got one of the cases right now. They're not going to prosecute. Uh, uh, one of the elements is because it's a civil matter, and I'm looking at this and going, oh, "Have you lost your mind? Have you done any digging?" have you served the section 205 but this is something i get to like maybe once a year with a particular investigating officer you deal with it every single day you know what the level of of support is in in, in this saps today you know that uh, you have maybe a handful that you can rely on directly if i go to this guy he's going to help me he's going to. and the same applies for the mpa the mpa has been gutted the capacity of the south african police services gutted. Here we are sitting in a digital era. We are sitting with uh, terabyte SSD drives in our laptops for Pete's sakes. You know how much data you and I can, can churn through and analyze and investigate just using a laptop. Go to these police stations and show me how, how their network works, how their infrastructure works, how, how connected they are to technology. Show me. Uh, and you as well, you know as well as I do, you go to any rural police station, go to any police station, their technology is virtually non-existent or redundant. How are those investigators even supposed to begin to do their work? they are got to pay for their own airtime. they are got to pay for their own cell phones. So, so the whole system is, is irrevocably damaged. So you literally have to build it up from the ground again. And then you have a culture that starts uh, a festering inside the organisation, the police, the MPA, Why do my job? I can't do my job. I, you know, if I do my job or I don't do my job, nothing much will change. So yeah, uh, your your due process, uh, uh, legal process, the investigative process is is, is shocking at the moment.
1: We challenge Bart Henderson about the state of fraud and corruption in South Africa. When we come back. For the final portion of the show we're going to chat about what can be done to rebuild what clearly is becoming if it's not there already a collapsed system you' listening to confidential brief confidential brief is proudly brought to you by rubber roofs the trusted name in roof waterproofing we're in conversation today with Fraud lecturer and renowned fraud investigator Bart Henderson, CFE, um, one of the first, based back in 1994, and um, we've had a, a very interesting conversation about the problems that we've seen surfacing. It's a problem that's known to everybody. It's not a secret that we are in trouble from a fraud and corruption perspective. I want to spend the last 10 minutes with Bart discussing how we can change this and is there something to salvage? Can we be saved from this tsunami of fraud and corruption?
0: I think the, the only thing that, that can really save us is political will. Um, and uh, I, I'm not the person to answer that. You know, is do we have the political will? Are we going to have the political will? Um, how much money? You know, do we throw more money at it?
1: So, so let's talk about that Because I mentioned earlier That I believe there was a lack of willpower And I need to qualify what I meant When I say willpower It's exactly what you've just said Political will And I say that we have the legislation We have the units But they don't have capacity yeah. So we know that a thousand experienced detectives Have retired early Because they're scared that their pension fund May be diluted So they've taken early retirement at 55 They haven't been replaced They haven't transferred their skills And we also know that the whole only get 2% of the annual police budgets, but they are our priority crime investigating unit. So, will throwing more money at this solve the problem? Will training detectives solve the problem? Or is this just a part of what has to, to change? What about the culture that has established itself in South Africa?
0: Yeah, you, know, you see, you, um, I, I was waiting to, to, to say, to have my little pearl of wisdom, um, culture. You know, Chad, companies, how much, how much money does a company, or you know, let's take a blue chip, you know, discovery or you know, maybe I should not mention this guy. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I'm not saying anything bad, but let's take a discovery or a Coca-Cola, whoever it might be. How much money it gets spent on systems and controls in organizations to prevent fraud and corruption and how much? 95, 99% of their budget. But here's the thing. Your systems and your processes don't decide to wake up one morning and go and bite you on the backside and, and, and steal all your money. People do. People using systems. So, so so the actual problem isn't the system and the control. The actual problem is people who have the opportunity uh, and the perceived need or expectation or whatever else it might be to go and commit a fraud Maybe it's just greed um, You know Whatever it is But it's people that commit the fraud Now how much of your budget Do you And how much and It is not simply, you know, culture. It's not a question of going to slap up some some uh, wonderful uh, uh, brochure or you know, a brochure, a poster up on the wall to say, you know, be ethical and 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 uh, uh, be a nice guy. No, culture has to do with setting a tone within the organisation, I mean, attitudes, people's perception of w- of what wrongdoing is. Um, what is the culture that you inculcate in the people in the organisation? How much do you spend on these courses? To to deal with the root cause is not the system; it's people. Nothing by comparison. It's a grudge purchase. So so. But that is the underlying cause of all the crime that we have in the country today. All the fraud, violent crime, everything. It all comes down to culture. And you know, we're not talking about culture along a racial basis. We're talking about culture in terms of corporate culture, organisational culture. Um, there. And I've been arguing that for 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 20 years to so say, people, you know, you're just going to call me back again. There's going to be a problem. You're going to call me back again. What are you doing to address the underlying and the fundamental issues here, whether it's external culture starting to impact on your organization through companies that you do business with and their employees? uh tolerance towards uh, the wrongdoing uh or is it something inside your organization where you have people's overbearing personalities you have a uh, uh a ceo that's unapproachable etc you treat your staff badly don't pay them enough and that type of thing you know but then we've got eskom on the other hand they get paid more than everybody else and you've got an organization that's literally a criminal enterprise so so how does that work but ultimately you touched on the most important element and that is culture
1: so when one speaks about the South African crime scene, you hear the expression "a fish rots from the head down." Uh-huh. Does it mean that for fundamental change to occur, we have to see it in terms of our political leadership?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, how many of the the the, the political leadership that we have, have 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 been and are in the investigation themselves? You know, we 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 have our. Um, uh, uh, integrity comi- committee or commission, whatever, with, you know, with the, with the ruling party and, um, and yet you have, I mean, your, your, your commission, what's, what's the minister? What is he? I don't even know anymore. Uh, the hat.
1: In cat in the cat The
0: cat in the hat. I mean, that guy's still, I mean, what happened to that building that, 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 he was involved with that lease? I mean, that was an investigation. He was fired for that. How do you reappoint somebody who was fired for corruption in the past?
1: San d- Lamedista
0: are you with me um, and what message does that 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 gets to the core of, literally of culture again because people look at that and they say well there is no accountability there is no responsibility and so you perpetuate a cycle of of okay it's okay to do this it's
1: it's it's all right and you can get away with it could we as a country consider something similar to the TRC from a commerce perspective an economic crime perspective where we grant immunity and pardons so we can move on from this terrible chapter and try claw back as part of a sanction whatever there is that's been taken
0: you know why don't we you know if we're going to look at models why don't we look at Saudi Arabia I mean (laughs) we're looking at the TRC because we have a liberal democracy but these you know I mean why why don't we take a look at infrastructure number one Let's look at Transnet. What is the damage that's been done to the country? At what point does this corruption and this fraud, is it fraud and corruption and at what point is it actually, how can we never talk about treason
1: anymore? One billion rand a day is what the collapse of our rail infrastructure has cost our country in commerce. One billion rand a day. And we're silent. Silent. You're not. I'm not. But why is it not getting to those people that should be listening? We see commissions of inquiry. We see committees set up. We hear about integrity commissions. Where is it getting us?
0: Well, I think when you have the, you know, now obviously we're venturing into the realms of the politics, but I think I think when when, when you start um, mixing party and state it, it's fine, you know. Having the ruling party, the ANC, being the ANC, I mean, it's great. You know, I mean, I've got great friends, and, I, and, and I've worked for some of the leaders. But here's the thing: you 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 protect the party at all costs. But when you start protecting the party at all costs, and the cadres of the party at all costs, and that includes the cost of the country, well, now you're working at, a, at, at opposite ends. And so there there is no consequence because you automatically, if there's going to be a consequence, you're going to bring the party into disrepute, so you protect the party. And there you have this paradox. So you can't do anything without damaging the reputation and the image of the party, so you will not get an outcome. You won't. And for South Africans to sit here and wait for something to happen um, that's ultimately going to point to leaders in government that belong to a particular party... Are we really waiting to see an outcome? We're we in trouble, Chad. I can tell you that right now. We are seriously in trouble. You cannot expect. We have got so many cases. There are thousands, tens of thousands, and no outcomes. And these are blatant. They're there. I mean, these fraud today and fraud investigation today, and I'm going to say it again and again and again, is not rocket science at all. People who will try and make it rocket science want to charge bigger bills. I can also use acronyms and sweet language and 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 and, uh, and legal talk. Easy, and then I can charge a nice bigger bill because everything's I'm smart. I like to keep things simple. There's that acronym kiss, and, and that that stood me instead for for many many years. It's not rocket science. Why? You tell me why we've got no prosecutions. You tell me we've got investigations. When laws? Where are these dockets? Where are these investigations dockets? They just don't surface. So, yeah, I get back to my lecture in Zimbabwe, the same thing I told the people then, and I'm going to tell this to the South African public right now. The only difference between Zimbabwe and South Africa is how big is the bang? If somebody can show me a path, a, a definitive path that, we, that we, we're moving along, that's going to address this decline in uh, financial integrity and corporate morality in South Africa um, going forward that will uh, reverse this trend, I'll say f- I'll be the first one to be on the bandwagon, beating the drum and saying, "Let's go, guys!" But I don't see one. Have you? When last have you seen one? National Anti-Corruption Forum that we used to have, the White Collar Crime Summits that we used to have. Um, it used to be hundreds of people. they all talking, innovative people, uh, uh, um, driven people, talking about how to arrest the decline in financial integrity and corporate morality. Where, where, where are? They? When last did you see one of these uh, uh, conferences or, or summits?
1: Going to our message board, SMS from uh, a listener, and please put your name out there so that I can, I can send you a shout-out. One writes, the political will is not there. Another writes, brilliant guests. There are no ethics in organizational culture. I do agree with you on all of that. It is a brilliant guest, Bart Henderson, and you can find out more about him on his LinkedIn profile and also on Twitter, and I encourage you to follow him because he says it as it is. And in closing, Bart, what is your pearl of wisdom for us out there that are trying to fight the fight and seeing that it's becoming more insurmountable? Do we allow it to collapse? Do we carry on fighting, or do we consider perhaps this mass pardon and try the reset button?
0: I have uh, I have a problem with a mass pardon. I have a problem with pardons. Period. Uh, pay back the money. That's I. I, I want fire incompetence. On the spot, reward excellence. End a story, and if you've stolen the money, put them in jail. Capacitate those departments. S I U does. Uh, people might disagree with me. There are there are in the S I U amazing people doing amazing jobs. In the Hawks, there are some amazing people. Doing amazing jobs, There just aren't enough of them. And those that are doing the jobs are not recognised. They they literally have to skulk around and do their jobs, and that, it shouldn't be like that. So we need to we need to increase the capacity of these these uh, these units to actually do their job and training, education and training, which they don't get.
1: I'm going to ask Bart to pencil us into his diary for the next time he's in Johannesburg. So he can coming to studio and chat to us again. As ever, very enlightening, we'll be uploading a podcast of today's show to our socials. You can find us on Facebook, Confidential Brief Radio Show, also to my LinkedIn profile. And remember, you can follow Bart on his LinkedIn or Twitter profile, and he says it as it is. Bart, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Chad, it's always a pleasure being uh, with you in studio and talking to you again, my man.
1: That was Bart Henderson. We'll be back next week. We're chatting about local initiatives from Alexandra to combat the widespread crime that's taking place on the ground there. Join us next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay safe.